Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 178, A Case of the Fantods. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can check out Knitting Out Loud's catalog at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, an online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find more about Knit Circus and their latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. Hello, apologies all around. I thought I was going to podcast earlier than this, but websites were breaking and travel took way more time than we thought. And and I have a huge case of the fantods because um, in that way the universe has of doing things, the week that I officially don't start teaching at the university because I'm putting this business up online and getting all of that together and writing books and finding investors and all of this craziness, that was also the week my husband got laid off. So, uh, I think fantods is a good way to put it. There's not a lot of sleep happening here lately, but, uh, but lots and lots of work. And it's good work and it's exciting work. It's just absolutely bone-crushingly terrifying work. But, but you know, life is good. We're, we're still hanging in there and moving forward. So on that note, uh, for those of you who don't know the word fantods, uh, the first place I ever read about it was Mark Twain, uh, Huck Finn. I'm sure it shows up in Tom Sawyer as well, but I read it the first time that I remember in in Huckleberry Finn. And it's um, kind of terrified, shivering, shaking, freak out moment stuff. And, um, Evidently, uh, was it David Foster Wallace in Infinite Jest uh, talks about a case of the howling fantods, which I thought was just lovely, but I wasn't about to steal his text. I'll steal Twain's instead because he can't come after me. Speaking of that, uh, on the show notes, there is a link from our faithful listener, Renee, who sent in a link to a KQED, that's a San Francisco NPR feed radio station. They had a a show that she heard part of that discussed Mark Twain's autobiography at some length. So I have a link to that episode as well, in case you are interested. For those of you who want to know, the wedding in Seattle was lovely. We, of course, brought hot weather with us, but being from Tucson, uh, hot in Seattle is not exactly hot everywhere else. It wasn't even all that humid. I mean, it was really actually quite pleasant, especially if you were in the shade. And we went, you know, we took the the little monorail thingy over to where the Space Needle is, and we went to the Science Fiction Museum, which was really quite fun, and then the um, Experience Music Project, which was just absolutely nifty and the kids and I all had a great time singing and playing drums and playing guitar and uh, I learned how to play Louie Louie on the guitar don't think that wasn't thrilling (laughs) 
it's like learning learning the opening riff to day tripper on a guitar was kind of for me the same as learning louis louis on the guitar so that was great and then you know we had the wedding thing which was beautiful it was out on an island on an organic farm i kid you not um beautiful outdoors under the sky hotter than blazes but didn't matter because uh, the bride and the groom were gorgeous it was lovely it was touching it was a lot of fun and then you know the food was stunning and um and they were very very kind and generous i was not the only gluten-free person who was uh, at their shindig and uh, they provided for us very nicely um really it was it was just stupendous and uh i will be posting about that on mama onits and um and oh it was just lovely lovely so that was fun plus got to spend more time with fabulous sister-in-law yes the quilter who found a quilt shop in the pike place market which i'm sure a number of you have been to before and uh she hunted down some really nice uh neutrals i'm learning she found some neutrals and uh we didn't do the yarn stores i could have pushed it you know we were not all that far away when we were over by the space needle there's um was it Elliott Street? I can't remember. I used my little yarn phone app to locate uh, yarn stores in the vicinity. It was hilarious. Everybody's laughing at me, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't force everyone off their off their path and onto mine. So I felt pretty good about that. Very restrained, as it were. But we were we were in a wonderful part of town. Oh, and the other thing. Okay, uh, not being someone who's in Seattle very often. I didn't realize that there was a train that ran from Seattle, SeaTac Airport, up into Westlake Center, which is the mall from which you can get the monorail to go over to the Space Needle Science Center. There's a name for it. It's the something park thing place. Anyway, the long and the short of it is this. We could have paid $60 for a cab to drive the four of us to the airport in morning traffic, or we could pay, I don't know, what did it come out to, $9 total, $9.50, for four of us to ride a fabulous, eco-friendly, pollution-free train down to, it was light rail, down to SeaTac. It was a lovely ride. I can't imagine it could have taken less time on the streets. In fact, I can only imagine it would have taken more time because our flight was 7.30, 8, something like that. It was spectacular. I miss trains. Oh, Lord, how I miss trains. Really, it is the only civilized way to travel. It's just, it's shocking. They've been talking about putting light rail in between Tucson and Phoenix since I was in high school. Actually, that's not true, since I was in middle school, and maybe even before, but I didn't live here then, so I didn't know. It's just, it's appalling. But who knows, we may not be living in Arizona for much longer. I may be podcasting from yet another location someday. Who knows? We, uh, we are willing to travel wherever the job will take us, is what we're saying. Although, honestly, the older son, fifth grade, he's got a great teacher. And the younger son first grade he's got a great teacher so we may wind up splitting up again and 
depending on whether Andrew gets a job here or elsewhere, uh, I may be staying behind with the kids through the end of the school year, which is rather daunting. But, but boy, with all the trouble, as you know, with all the trouble that my older son has had in school, when you get a really good teacher, and not a good teacher in he likes the teacher, but a good teacher as in this teacher is going to kick his butt and hold his feet to the fire and make him learn how to learn at, you know, you kind of don't want to walk away from that. Not only that, but this is the husband of his fourth grade teacher. She was spectacular. Fifth grade teacher, the husband, spectacular. Husband is fourth generation teacher. How cool is that? You just kind of want to support that, you know? It's like, oh, I, I so love that. And speaking of the, the teacher thing, the uh, tutoring site broke, but is back up. Uh, part of the thing that broke was the shopping cart. So right now there are little PayPal buttons, but, um, but the long and the short is, if your kids are already back in school and having trouble, we can provide writing help, tutorial help online for you and your child. We also do college and adult level writing help. But for that, you kind of have to let us know what it is that you need help with, and then we can kind of plan with you. This is obviously not a big like Sylvan tutoring site. This is much more one-on-one -on -one and hands-on. And and you know me, so, so there it is. The other thing about that though, is we are in the process of getting approved as a provider for a number of homeschool slash charter school online provider places. Um, one of our listeners in, in uh, California turned us on to the fact that this was possible. And so we are, we are currently in the process of getting approved. So once that happens, Craftlet and the larger Craftlet family will be even more homeschool friendly for those of you who need the backup. Because I know how hard it is to teach your own kids at home. Wonderful rewarding not saying it's not just saying it's a lot of work so on that note the whole at home with kids thing i have some announcements for you from amy foster you may remember amy foster is our uh, author listener podcast friend <laughs> F-O-C, friend of Craftlet. She is uh, the author of When Autumn Leaves. She was originally preparing to go to London Bath, <laughs> London Blath and Wales, London Bath and Wales with us and then had to pull out. She emailed me a few months ago because she was having a kid. She was, she was having a baby and she had uh, for a long time fooled herself into thinking that she could give birth in early August and then get on a plane and go to England for a week in early October and finally had to kind of come to terms with that. However, I saw a picture of said baby. His name is Vaughn Ryder Freeman. He's gorgeous. He was born Monday, August 2nd at 346. He weighed nine pounds, six ounces and is 22 inches in length. So huge congratulations out to Amy because that's just, that's just exciting and wonderful. It's good to have new life coming into the world. We also, on just kind of a goofball note, got an email from Vanessa off of the Craftlet contact page. She said, uh, Kieran Hines is going to be playing, I did not know this, the part of Aberforth Dumbledore in the last two Harry Potter movies. 
thrilled. I'm very curious to see what they're going to do with his hair. Because I've been looking at pictures of the other adult characters who are coming up in this last installment or last installments of the Harry Potter saga. And everybody's hair has been done with, you know, um, Bill Nye, who I think is quite a distinguished looking gentleman, uh, has really, uh, he's got locks. He's got, you know, kind of drooping, <laughs> drooping and despondent locks. And uh, he's playing, I have no idea how to pronounce it. Uh, Rufus uh, Scrim, Scrimger, Scrimgower, Scrimger. I don't know. But uh, he's the new prime minister or minister of minister of magic. But, you know, anytime we can see old Kieran Hines on screen, we're, we're all happy people. So, yay. And on a different yay topic, uh, this week we'll see the next sneak peek of a pattern that will appear in the What Would Madame Defarge Knit book. And this one is from me. The pattern will be available as a limited time download on the craftlet.com show notes and on the What Would Madame Defarge Knit website, which is crafting a life, and that's hyphenated, so crafting hyphen a hyphen life.com slash WWMDFK. Or you can take the visual route and click on the pretty What Would Madame Defarge Knit button in the right hand sidebar of the craftlet.com show notes. So get it while you can, and tell all your friends to get it, so you can get as excited as we are about the book. Yay! I, I should let you know that there are going to be instructions for how to dye the yarn, because the yarn for this project was all Kool-Aid dyed. So there'll be extensive instructions in the book on how to do the dyeing. And this is Nora's Glacial Gauntlets. This is from Nora from A Doll's House. So... That is my contribution to our sneak peeks for the pattern book due out this December, What Would Madame Defarge Knit? I also have, as promised, audio from our listener Todd Culp. He and his wife listen in Chicago, and Todd wrote the book uh, that I mentioned before, The Friends Whose Names I Will Never Know. Well, Todd and I have been going back and forth. He is quite an extraordinary man who is married to quite an extraordinary woman. Uh, we've been emailing back and forth, and it's just, you know, as I have said before, Craftlet listeners are just better. And I think when you listen to the beginning of Todd's book, you will agree with me. It's it's one of those books that um, I started reading, and it's, well, you know what? I'm not going to say anything until after you listen. I got Todd to read the beginning of his book for you. So here we are with Todd reading The Friends Whose Names I Will Never Know. Chapter 1. In the Classroom After they bombed my train station and beheaded those tourists, things calmed down for a few days. But the morning we were supposed to get on our train from Bangkok to travel to the south, I received a call from my contact. He'd asked if I'd read the morning paper. When I said no, he commented that there had been a bombing in the town I was about to travel to. This time it was a hotel. When he said the name of the hotel, I started laughing, thinking he was joking with me. After a minute or two, I realized that I was the only one laughing. He wasn't joking. When I explained that the hotel he was talking about was the hotel I was booked at this evening, he said, Oh, well, that's, that's perfectly fine. They only blew up part of the hotel. I'm sure your part's just fine. So I checked into the hotel later on that night. 
As I finished the story I was telling to the class about some research I'd done in southern Thailand during the summer of 2001, a student in the back row asked, Dr. Culp, why do you go to all the ugly places in the world? Now, I've been teaching for about 17 years. After a while, you get good at not being offended by well-intentioned, if not poorly phrased, questions such as this. Even if they sum up your entire life's work as if it was a bad aesthetic choice, like, I don't know, bell-bottom pants or something. It was actually a pretty good question, one that took a certain amount of courage even to ask. My first reaction was to start laughing. The question was so brazen and yet awkward at the same time. In order to buy myself some time to think, I asked the student, Why do you see these places as ugly? Well, when you travel to the Middle East or to Southeast Asia, you never talk about seeing the beaches or the mountains. You go to the places where bombs go off and people shoot at each other, he said. Technically, that's true. And while I love beaches and mountains as much as anyone, there are things that are more beautiful. <laughs> like what, he said. Being present as heroes are born, I replied. I wasn't exactly sure how to explain this. Humans are funny creatures. Most of the creatures on this planet simply try to survive. And much of our behavior is survival-based as well. But we also laugh. We sing. We write poetry. And even dance. Now, this is the Midwest, so most of us do it badly. <laughs> but we do do it. We even love. Which doesn't always make sense in terms of survival. It would be nice if the list stopped here, but it really doesn't. We also plot, scheme, rape, torture, and commit genocide. If you want to understand both sides of humanity, to understand why humans do what they do, the best place to study this is in a zone of conflict. Obviously, in zones of conflict, you will see the worst side of human nature. But ironically, it's also where you'll see it at its best. Heroes emerge from the ashes, watered by the blood of others. Pressure affects people differently. Some rise to the occasion, some sink beneath its depths. Further, the conflict itself acts like a magnet, drawing others from abroad into the cauldron to see if they will sink or rise. Although entering this cauldron you will undoubtedly witness horrific things you wish to expunge from your memory if you could, the cauldron is also the heart of beauty. Humans engage in selfless acts that boggle the mind. A man whose entire life, and that of his family's, has been destroyed by the Israelis makes it his life's work to reach out and call them brothers. A woman whose son was killed by a Palestinian sniper reaches out to the sniper's mother in a gesture of forgiveness and reconciliation. Soldiers, both Israeli and Palestinian, meet together to discuss the atrocities they have personally committed against one another and ask for the unthinkable forgiveness and perhaps even friendship these things make something as grand as a mountain seem rather small I don't pretend to understand these people fully these peacemakers for lack of a better less cliched term I've spent the majority of my academic life trying to understand a very different type of people I've always been fascinated by the question of why people are willing to fight, kill, or die for their principles. As a result, I began my career studying the combatants, not the peacemakers. I've conducted interviews with groups such as Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and others in the West Bank. I've spent time talking to people in Southeast Asia 
in the midst of a conflict marked by targeted killings of priests and teachers. Not only are the targets of these killings a testament to how brutal this conflict was, but let's not forget, I am a teacher. I try not to take it too personally. I've spent the afternoon sipping tea on the front porch of a man who was educated, eloquent, and heartbroken. He was also a member of an organization whose members are comfortable with the idea of strapping a bomb to one's chest and walking into a crowded mall. I've spoken with Israeli soldiers who are comfortable with the concept that there is no such thing as civilians, women, children, the elderly, all fair game. But these peacemakers about whom I write this time are difficult to understand. They are easy to admire, but hard to figure. Many of them are perfectly willing to fight and die, but not to kill. Others are willing to forgive the unforgivable. But to look at the combatants and the peacemakers as two fully distinct groups creates a false dichotomy and tempts us to hubris. It's easy to label the combatants as the villains and the peacemakers as the heroes and thus identify ourselves with the heroes. This vastly oversimplifies the motivations of the combatants and does not give nearly enough credit to the peacemakers. Because at the end of the day, as much as we admire the peacemakers, we share more in common with the combatants than we'd like to admit. I am fascinated with these peacemakers precisely because I'm not sure I could ever be one. I've used their tactics before. I ever even knew they were tactics. It was simply the right thing to do at the time. I've stood between the soldiers and their guns and their intended targets. I've played the fool in order to distract soldiers from taking out their bad mood on an unlucky fruit vendor. So yes, I've dabbled in what they do. But the people about whom I write do this every day. Day in and day out. Many of them have suffered losses I cannot fathom, and still they rise to the occasion. Too many of them have lost children in this conflict, and still they reach across the battle lines to grasp the hand of an enemy in the solidarity of pain. I speak as a man who has three little girls around whom not only does the world revolve for me, but the universe as well. I cannot fathom, I do not allow myself to fathom, the places I would go or the things that I would do should even one of them be harmed in any way. I feel a rage of biblical proportion when someone so much as hurts their feelings. It is one thing for me to put myself in harm's way to protect someone whom I believe is being unfairly treated. But to love an enemy who has taken the dearest thing in my life away from me is beyond my capacity to imagine. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we may have more in common with the combatants I studied than with the peacemakers. I was so relieved when Todd said that he would attempt recording this himself because I, every time I read the chapter and just now listening to it again, and that's just the first part of the first chapter, um, I found it very difficult to talk for a while. <laughs> uh, I don't think there is a better advertisement for this book than hearing Todd read the opening to it. It's um, a remarkable, remarkable book. And, you know, I don't do a whole lot of advertising on the show as far as 
the the people who come on. I mean, you can tell if I'm enthusiastic about a book, like with the the guys who did uh, Plato and a Platypus walk into a bar and, and stuff like that. And I'm sure if you like the book, you know, how they sound, you'd go out and take a look at it. Todd's book is going to be a little harder to find. I don't know if it's on Amazon yet. I do know we have a link to his publisher. But um, knowing you all, as I do from emails and from meeting you, and uh, and having gotten to know Todd, this is this is a, a book to purchase, and and get your friends to purchase and read, and discuss. I think I think it's time. We've been watching. Uh, we watched Lincoln Center. Lincoln Center did a live version of um, South Pacific, a play which I have loathed and despised since I saw it both as a movie and then again as a play when I was in high school. And I remember going back to my high school drama teacher and she said, oh, South Pacific, oh, I love it. You know, the movie's cheeseball and all, but, but uh, you know, the movie, the music's so great and oh, I've always loved that play. And I said, really? Because something was missing. And she looked at me funny and she said, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know. All I can figure out is that they, they chopped off scenes, like big huge honking scenes because nothing made sense. Nellie Forbush didn't make sense. Emile didn't make sense. Nobody made sense. Uh, Lieutenant Cable didn't make sense. Well, watching the live at Lincoln Center, I can see why people in New York are going bonkers for this particular version of South Pacific. I don't know if it's the original version or not. I don't know if it's the one that Rodgers and Hammerstein actually librettized, but I can tell you this. It makes a lot more sense, and it's hard, and it's painful, and especially having watched things like uh, The Pacific and World War II in HD, which they're showing right now, which is all the color footage from World War II, which makes it look ever so much more modern and immediate and terrifying. It, it just resonated all of this kind of all at once resonated with with Todd's book and um, and you know finally finally having people it started with Saving Private Ryan I know but finally having people kind of come to terms with uh, World War II may have been a good war quote unquote but the idea that there is a good war is kind of crazy and and wow I'm just really thankful that 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 I'm so lucky because we are, all of us, anyone who's able to listen to this, you know, you're already a cut above. You've got a computer or an MP3 player or some means by which you get to listen to a free podcast. And of course, free is kind of ridiculous because you have to have all this equipment in order to listen. So it's just, it's humbling. It's humbling to know people like Todd and his wife there. So end of advertisement. To get us into... Mark Twain. I have another bit of a departure for you. Uh, you know, Twain talks a lot about religion, and and while he was religious, he certainly doesn't seem to like the organized part of religion. Well, there's another thing that I think uh, he might have been interested by. In uh, a magazine, let's see, this is the fall 2010 issue of Reform Judaism, there's an article which I have linked to, and it's on the web in its entirety, on uh, the mistranslation of the Bible, and that it, it really, you know, began with King James. There were a lot of 
um, errors of translation going on. And the article goes through how easy it is to mistranslate the Bible for all sorts of reasons, but then also some of the repercussions and, and what the traps are that you can fall into. And I'm just going to read you, I think there's, there's four. I'm going to read you the f- number four of, um, of the, the top translation traps. And then if you're interested, um, please go read the article. I, I found the whole thing fascinating. And it goes beyond just the thou shalt not kill versus thou shalt not murder uh, thing, although it touches on it. There's, there's a lot more in here, as you'll see right now. So, trap number four is called missing the point. The American expression, out of sight, out of mind, sounds as if it might be paraphrased as blind idiot. But of course, it cannot, which is why translation involves much more than looking at a word or a group of words in isolation. That same blind idiot error occurred when Laura Esquivel's book, originally titled Como Agua para Chocolate, was translated into English as a book and later as a movie. Como means like, agua is water, para is for, and chocolate is chocolate. Accordingly, the English language renditions of both book and movie became like water for chocolate. In Spanish, like water for chocolate is a common expression based on the Spanish culinary tradition of preparing hot chocolate with water that is about to boil. In this context, water, for making hot chocolate, refers to water at the boiling point, as we might say in English. This understanding is consistent with the tension-filled story of a woman who cannot marry the man she wants because, as the youngest daughter, she must care for her mother. So while the translation, like water for chocolate, gets all of the words right in English, in the end, it completely misses the point. Esquivel's Spanish title foreshadows the internal tensions of her characters. Even though the English translation gets all of the words right, it is not a good translation. It foreshadows nothing. A similar example of getting the words right, but the meaning wrong, can be found in Numbers 31.2. Avenge the Israelite people on the Midnights, then you shall be gathered to your kin. The Hebrew phrase, Ne'esaf elamav, or gathered to his people, means died. But, JPS translates this line literally as, you, Moses, you shall be gathered to your kin, leaving the English reader unaware that death is involved. It is as if someone defined the English phrase, kicked the bucket, as hit the pail with his leg. Knowing what the Hebrew words mean is generally only the first half of translating the Bible. The second half, and sometimes more difficult half, is finding English words that mean the same thing as the original Hebrew. I thought that was interesting. Um, I especially like that they used Laura Esquivel's Like Water for Chocolate as an example because that has driven me nuts for years, um, as, you, as you can imagine, now that you've been listening to me all this time. And then the last thing before we get into our twain is um, another email back from Jennifer. She's the one who was able to fill in the blanks and correct my uh, misspeakings on the nature of parchment. She says, the other thing to consider is that some of the inks used were iron gall ink, G-A-L-L, which is not pH neutral. So any part of that that did sink in is starting to eat the page, which could explain some of it reappearing. Also, old pages of manuscripts were used a lot in the binding of books. Lots of medieval music has been found as the starts of books where they cleaned on one side and the other side was left with the music still on them and then bound to cover hiding it from view. 
And on other medieval topics, one of the things I've noticed so far is that the clothing being called out is sounding very 14th to 15th century versus 6th century, when things are supposedly uh, supposed to be taking place. Now, Mallory was writing in the 15th century, so that does make sense, especially if Twain studied him extensively. Um, and then she goes on to talk about uh, needing to do some reading, but the clothing in England should have been at that time in the Anglo-Saxon period that should have been looser fitting tunics with slightly fitted pants with leg wraps. And um, she actually did send a, a PDF that had some pictures in it. I'm going to see if I can extract those pictures and put them up for you um, because she knows what she's talking about. And it does, it does kind of make sense that... Um, that they would have gone with 14th and 15th century versus 6th century because you know they had they had oh, well i'm i'm looking at one of the pictures that was drawn for the original text and it looks like they're trying to do romeo and juliet you know it looks it looks like they're trying to do renaissance because i'm sure that was uh far more familiar to them at the time and and also you know you can't forget that america was trying to compete with europe still when twain was writing to try and um prove that we were capable of creating art and just like the romans trying to create a mythology that goes back to Troy, back to pre-Troy, you know, you get Romulus and Remus to try and, and, and make their um, civilization seem grand and ancient, just like, you know, the, the Nazis picked up on Romanesque um, armaments and, and, you know, the, the eagles and, and all that stuff to try and hearken back again. I have a feeling that the, the artists who were dealing with this and Twain himself probably swayed by all of this, that they were trying to um, connect with something that was very well respected. But, uh, but I was having the same, the same problems listening. I kept going, God, I don't think... I mean, in our costuming class that we took at UCLA, we had to learn everything, <laughs> everything about... Uh, about what clothes look like, not how to construct them, unless we were doing a play where we had to construct them. But uh, I do remember that our final in that class, it was really actually quite hard. I've never written so fast in my life. We were shown the movie Oliver, and we had to write down all the mistakes. Hair, makeup, clothing. It was a lot of writing. So uh, if any of you out there other than uh, than Jennifer are up on your clothing from centuries past you may notice these glitches as well i don't think they're surprising you know there um but today our chapters are on morgan Le Fay. now we haven't really dealt with morgan Le Fay yet and uh, there's you know there's funny stuff obviously it's twain and he has a thing or two to say about morgan Le Fay as you can imagine. And he's definitely going from the, the Mallory... Le, okay, let's just say he's not coming from the Miss of Avalon stance on the Fae. So for those of you who've read T.H. Uh, White or Mallory, um, you'll know Morgan Le Fay is generally not depicted as a particularly nice person. So this allows us, um, where we left off last week was where Sandy and the boss were riding through the countryside and they'd had their breakfast with uh, the men that they met along the way. 
and Sandy had been telling her story, and then they were coming upon a grand castle. Well, this is the castle. It's Morgan Le Fay's castle. The politics that are revealed in the two chapters we're going to listen today, 16 and 17, and 18 next week, are, I think, very likely Mark Twain transposing American slavery and the, if you could call them laws, that were part of that, and overlaying that over this 6th century context. Um, I don't think Mark Twain went out and did a whole lot of historical research beyond Mallory. Um, at least he, he, he doesn't, the stuff that I've read doesn't say that he, you know, went and poured over books in great European libraries. Instead, I think uh, Mark Twain couldn't tolerate injustice in general and tried very hard to show people by example the true logic behind a situation. So, so it's, I'm sorry that I'm not able to do all of these chapters all at once because uh, the next one for next week is, is actually quite long. But, uh, but I think you'll, you'll see part of it coming today. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's an injustice thing for Twain, I think all the way around. And, and then, of course, there's the funny stuff in the middle. He always has comic relief. So I think that's pretty much it. We've had a little bit of social injustice. Today is really a lot of social injustice, but it's going to surprise you. There will come a moment where you go, oh, no way. So it's good. It's all good. And today we have chapters 16 and 17 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 16, Morgan Le Fay. If knights errant were to be believed, not all castles were desirable places to seek hospitality in. As a matter of fact, knights errant were not persons to be believed, that is, measured by modern standards of veracity. Yet, measured by the standards of their own time and scaled accordingly, you got the truth. It was very simple. You discounted a statement ninety-seven percent. The rest was fact. Now, after making this allowance, the truth remained that if I could find out something about a castle before ringing the doorbell, I mean, hailing the warders, it was the sensible thing to do. So I was pleased when I saw in the distance a horseman making the bottom turn of the road that wound down from this castle. As we approached each other, I saw that he wore a plumed helmet, and seemed to be otherwise clothed in steel, but bore a curious addition also— a stiff square garment like a herald's tabard. However, I had to smile at my own forgetfulness when I got nearer and read this sign on his tabard. Persimmon soap! All the prima donna use it. That was a little idea of my own, and had several wholesome purposes in view toward the civilizing and uplifting of this nation. In the first place, it was a furtive, underhand blow at this nonsense of knight-errantry, though nobody suspected that but me. 
I had started a number of these people out, the bravest knights I could get, each sandwiched between bulletin boards bearing one device or another, and I judged that by and by, when they got to be numerous enough, they would begin to look ridiculous, and then even the steel-clad ass that hadn't any board would himself begin to look ridiculous, because he was out of the fashion. Secondly, these missionaries would gradually, and without creating suspicion or exciting alarm, introduce a rudimentary cleanliness among the nobility, and from them it would work down to the people, if the priests could be kept quiet. This would undermine the church. I mean, would be a step toward that. Next, education. Next, freedom. And then she would begin to crumble. It being my conviction that any established church is an established crime, an established slave pen, I had no scruples, but was willing to assail it in any way or with any weapon that promised to hurt it. Why, in my own former day, in remote centuries not yet stirring in the womb of time, there were old English men who imagined that they had been born in a free country, a free country with the Corporation Act and the tests still in force in it, timbers propped against men's liberties and dishonored consciences to shore up an established anachronism with. My missionaries were taught to spell out the gilt signs on their tabards, the showy gilding was a neat idea. I could have got the king to wear a bulletin board for the sake of that barbaric splendor. They were to spell out these signs, and then explain to the lords and ladies what soap was, and if the lords and ladies were afraid of it, get them to try it on a dog. The missionary's next move was to get the family together and try it on himself. He was to stop at no experiment, however desperate, that could convince the nobility that soap was harmless." If any final doubt remained, he must catch a hermit. The woods were full of them. Saints, they called themselves, and saints they were believed to be. They were unspeakably holy, and worked miracles, and everybody stood in awe of them. If a hermit could survive a wash, and that failed to convince the duke, give him up, let him alone. Whenever my missionaries overcame a knight-errant on the road, they washed him, and when he got well, they swore him to go and get a bulletin board and disseminate soap and civilization the rest of his days. As a consequence, the workers in the field were increasing by degrees, and the reform was steadily spreading. My soap factory felt the strain early. At first I had only two hands, but before I had left home I was already employing fifteen and running night and day and the atmospheric result was getting so pronounced that the king went sort of fainting and gasping around, and said he did not believe he could stand it much longer, and Sir Lancelot got so that he did hardly anything but walk up and down the roof and swear, although I told him it was worse up there than anywhere else, but he said he wanted plenty of air, and he was always complaining that a palace was no place for a soap factory anyway, and said if a man was to start one in his house he would be damned if he wouldn't strangle him. There were ladies present, too, but much these people ever cared for that. They could swear before children, if the wind was their way when the factory was going. This missionary knight's name was Lacote Maltail, and he said that his castle was the abode of Morgan le Fay, sister of King Arthur, and wife of King Uriens, monarch of a realm about as big as the District of Columbia. You could stand in the middle of it and throw bricks into the next kingdom. Kings and kingdoms 
were as thick in Britain as they had been in little Palestine in Joshua's time, when people had to sleep with their knees pulled up because they couldn't stretch out without a passport. Lacote was much depressed, for he had scored here the worst failure of his campaign. He had not worked off a cake. Yet he had tried all the tricks of the trade, even to the washing of a hermit. But the hermit died. This was indeed a bad failure, for this animal would now be dubbed a martyr, and would take his place among the saints of the Roman calendar. Thus made he his moan, this poor Sir Lacote Maltail, and sorrowed passing sore. And so my heart bled for him, and I was moved to comfort and stay him. Wherefore I said, Forbear to grieve, fair knight, for this is not a defeat. We have brains, you and I, and for such as have brains there are no defeats but only victories. Observe how we will turn this seeming disaster into an advertisement, an advertisement for our soap, and the biggest one to draw that was ever thought of, an advertisement that will transform that Mount Washington defeat into a Matterhorn victory. We will put on your bulletin board, patronized by the elect. How does that strike you? Verily, it is wonderfully bethought. Well, a body is bound to admit that for just a modest little one-line ad, it's a corker. So the poor coal-porter's grief vanished away. He was a brave fellow, and had done mighty feats of arms in his time. His chief celebrity rested upon the events of an excursion like this one of mine, which he had once made with a damsel named Maledissant who was as handy with her tongue as was Sandy, though in a different way, for her tongue churned forth only railings and insult, whereas Sandy's music was of a kindlier sort. I knew his story well, and so I knew how to interpret the compassion that was in his face when he bade me farewell. He supposed I was having a bitter hard time of it. Sandy and I discussed his story as we rode along, and she said that Lacote's bad luck had begun with the very beginning of that trip, for the king's fool had overthrown him on the first day, and in such cases it was customary for the girl to desert to the conqueror, but Maledissant didn't do it, and also persisted afterward in sticking to him after all his defeats. But, said I, suppose the victor should decline to accept his spoil. She said that that wouldn't answer, he must. He couldn't decline. It wouldn't be regular. I made a note of that. If Sandy's music got to be too burdensome sometime, I would let a knight defeat me on the chance that she would desert to him. In due time we were challenged by the warders from the castle walls, and after a parley admitted. I have nothing pleasant to tell about that visit, but it was not a disappointment, for I knew Mrs. Le Fay by reputation, and was not expecting anything pleasant. She was held in awe by the whole realm, for she had made everybody believe she was a great sorceress. All her ways were wicked, all her instincts devilish. She was loaded to the eyelids with cold malice. All her history was black with crime, and among her crimes murder was common. I was most curious to see her, as curious as I could have been to see Satan. To my surprise, she was beautiful." Black thoughts had failed to make her expression repulsive. Age had failed to wrinkle her satin skin or mar its bloomy freshness. She could have passed for old Urien's granddaughter. She could have been mistaken for her sister to her own son. As soon as we were fairly within the castle gates, we were ordered into her presence. 
King Uriens was there, a kind-faced old man with a subdued look, and also the son, Sir Ewain Le Blanchemains, in whom I was, of course, interested on account of the tradition that he had once done battle with thirty knights, and also on account of his trip with Sir Gawain and Sir Marhaus, which Sandy had been aging me with. But Morgan was the main attraction, the conspicuous personality here. She was head chief of this household, and that was plain. She caused us to be seated, and then she began— with all manner of pretty graces and graciousness, to ask me questions. Dear me, it was like a bird or a flute or something talking. I felt persuaded that this woman must have been misrepresented, lied about. She trilled along and trilled along, and presently a handsome young page, clothed like the rainbow and as easy and undulatory of movement as a wave, came with something on a golden slalver, and kneeling to present it to her, overdid his graces and lost his balance, and so fell lightly against her knee. She slipped a dirk into him, in as matter-of-fact a way as another person would have harpooned a rat. Poor child! He slumped to the floor, twisted his silken limbs in one great straining contortion of pain, and was dead. Out of the old king was wrung an involuntary, oh, of compassion. The look he got made him cut it suddenly short, and not put any more hyphens in it. Sir Ewain, at a sign from his mother, went to the ante-room and called some servants, and meanwhile Madame went rippling sweetly along with her talk. I saw that she was a good housekeeper, for while she talked she kept a corner of her eye on the servants to see that they made no balks in handling the body and getting it out. When they came with fresh, clean towels, she sent back for the other kind— and when they had finished wiping the floor and were going, she indicated a crimson fleck the size of a tear which their duller eyes had overlooked. It was plain to me that La Cote Maltaile had failed to see the mistress of the house. Often, how louder and clearer than any tongue, does dumb circumstantial evidence speak. Morgan Le Fay rippled along as musically as ever, marvelous woman, and what a glance she had! When it fell in reproof upon those servants, they shrunk and quailed as timid people do when the lightning flashes out of a cloud. I could have got the habit myself. It was the same with that poor old Br'er Urians. He was always on the ragged edge of apprehension. She could not even turn toward him, but he winced. In the midst of the talk I let drop a complimentary word about King Arthur, forgetting for the moment how this woman hated her brother. That one little compliment was enough— she clouded up like storm. She called for her guards and said, "'Hail me these varlets to the dungeons!' That struck cold on my ears, for her dungeons had a reputation. Nothing occurred to me to say or do, but not so with Sandy. As the guard laid a hand upon me, she piped up with the tranquilest confidence and said, "'God's wounds! Dost thou covet destruction, thou maniac? It is the boss!' Now, what a happy idea that was, and so simple, yet it would never have occurred to me. I was born modest, not all over, but in spots, and this was one of the spots. The effect upon Madame was electrical. It cleared her countenance and brought back her smiles and all her persuasive graces and blandishments, but nevertheless she was not able to entirely cover up with them the fact that she was in a ghastly fright. She said, "'La!' but do list to thine handmaid, 
as if one gifted with powers like to mine might say the thing which I have said unto one who has vanquished Merlin, and not be jesting. By mine enchantments I foresaw your coming, and by them I knew you when you entered here. I did but play this little jest with hope to surprise you into some display of your art, as not doubting you would blast the guards with occult fires, consuming them to ashes on the spot, a marvel much beyond mine own ability, yet one which I have long been childishly curious to see. The guards were less curious, and got out as soon as they got permission. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17. A Royal Banquet Madame, seeing me pacific and unresentful, no doubt judged that I was deceived by her excuse, for her fright dissolved away, and she was soon so importunate to have me give an exhibition and kill somebody, that the thing grew to be embarrassing. However, to my relief, she was presently interrupted by the call to prayers. I will say this much for the nobility, that— tyrannical, murderous, rapacious, and morally rotten as they were, they were deeply and enthusiastically religious. Nothing could divert them from the regular and faithful performance of the pieties enjoined by the church. More than once I had seen a noble who had gotten his enemy at a disadvantage stop to pray before cutting his throat. More than once I had seen a noble, after ambushing and dispatching his enemy, retire to the nearest wayside shrine, and humbly give thanks, without even waiting to rob the body. There was to be nothing finer or sweeter in the life of even Benvenuto Cellini, that rough-hewn saint, ten centuries later. All the nobles of Britain with their families attended divine service morning and night, daily, in their private chapels, and even the worst of them had family worship five or six times a day besides. The credit of this belonged entirely to the church. Although I was no friend of that Catholic church, I was obliged to admit this, and often, in spite of me, I found myself saying, What would this country be without the church? After prayers, we had dinner in a great banqueting hall, which was lighted by hundreds of grease jets, and everything was as fine and lavish and rudely splendid as might become the royal degree of the hosts. At the head of the hall, on a dais, was the table of the king, queen, and their son, Prince Uwaine. Stretching down the hall from this was the general table on the floor. At this, above the salt, sat the visiting nobles and the grown members of their families of both sexes. The resident court, in effect, sixty-one persons. Below the salt sat minor officers of the household with their principal subordinates, altogether a hundred and eighteen persons sitting, and about as many liveried servants standing behind their chairs, or serving in one capacity or another. It was a very fine show. In a gallery a band with cymbals, horns, harps, and other horrors opened the proceedings with what seemed to be the crude first draft or original agony of the wail known to later centuries as In the Sweet By and By. It was new, and ought to have been rehearsed a little more. For some reason or other the Queen had the composer hanged after dinner. After this music, the priest who stood behind the royal table said a noble long grace in ostensible Latin. Then the battalion of waiters broke away from their posts and darted, rushed, flew, fetched and carried, and the mighty feeding began. No words anywhere, but absorbing attention to business." 
the rows of chops opened and shut in vast unison, and the sound of it was like to the muffled burr of subterranean machinery. The havoc continued an hour and a half, and unimaginable was the destruction of substantials. Of the chief feature of the feast, the huge wild boar that lay stretched out so portly and imposing at the start, nothing was left but the semblance of a hoop-skirt, and he was but the type and symbol of what had happened to all the other dishes. With the pastries and so on, the heavy drinking began, and the talk. Gallon after gallon of wine and mead disappeared, and everybody got comfortable, then happy, then sparklingly joyous, both sexes, and by and by pretty noisy. Men told anecdotes that were terrific to hear, but nobody blushed, and when the nub was sprung, the assemblage let go with a hoarse laugh that shook the fortress. Ladies answered back with historiettes that would almost have made Queen Margaret of Navarre, or even the great Elizabeth of England, hide behind a handkerchief, but nobody hid here, but only laughed, howled, you may say. In pretty much all of these dreadful stories, ecclesiastics were the hardy heroes, but that didn't worry the chaplain any. He had his laugh with the rest. More than that, upon invitation he roared out a song which was of as daring a sort as any that was sung that night. By midnight everybody was fagged out, and sore with laughing, and, as a rule, drunk, some weepingly, some affectionately, some hilariously, some quarrelsomely, some dead, and under the table. Of the ladies the worst spectacle was a lovely young duchess whose wedding eve this was, and indeed she was a spectacle, sure enough. Just as she was, she could have sat in advance for the portrait of the young daughter of the Regent d'Orléans, at the famous dinner whence she was carried, foul-mouthed, intoxicated, and helpless, to her bed, in the lost and lamented days of the Ancien Régime. Suddenly, even while the priest was lifting his hands, and all conscious heads were bowed in reverent expectation of the coming blessing, there appeared under the arch of the far-off door at the bottom of the hall an old and bent and white-haired lady leaning upon a crutch-stick, and she lifted the stick and pointed it toward the queen and cried out, "'The wrath and curse of God fall upon you, woman without pity, who have slain mine innocent grandchild and made desolate this old heart that had nor chick, nor friend, nor stay, nor comfort in all this world but him.' Everybody crossed himself in a grisly fright, for a curse was an awful thing to those people. But the queen rose up majestic with the death-light in her eye, and flung back this ruthless command, "'Lay hands on her! To the stake with her!' The guards left their posts to obey. It was a shame. It was a cruel thing to see. What could be done? Sandy gave me a look. I knew she had another inspiration. I said, "'Do what you choose.' She was up and facing toward the queen in a moment. She indicated me, and said, "'Madam, he saith this may not be. Recall the commandment, or he will dissolve the castle, and it shall vanish away like the instable fabric of a dream.' Confound it! What a crazy contract to pledge a person to! What if the queen—but my consternation subsided there, and my panic passed off, for the queen, all in a collapse, made no show of resistance, but gave a countermanding sign— and sunk into her seat. When she reached it, she was sober. So were many of the others. The assemblage rose, whiffed ceremony to the winds, and rushed for the door like a mob. 
overturning chairs, smashing crockery, tugging, struggling, shouldering, crowding, anything to get out before I should change my mind and puff the castle into the measureless dim vacancies of space. Well, 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 they were a superstitious lot. It is all a body can do to conceive of it. The poor queen was so scared and humbled that she was even afraid to hang the composer without first consulting me. I was very sorry for her, indeed any one would have been, for she was really suffering. So I was willing to do anything that was reasonable, and had no desire to carry things to wanton extremities. I therefore considered the matter thoughtfully, and ended by having the musicians ordered into our presence to play that sweet by-and-by again, which they did. Then I saw that she was right, and gave her permission to hang the whole band. This little relaxation of sternness had a good effect upon the queen. A statesman gains little by the arbitrary exercise of iron-clad authority upon all occasions that offer, for this wounds the just pride of his subordinates, and thus tends to undermine his strength. A little concession now and then, where it can do no harm, is the wiser policy. Now that the queen was at ease in her mind once more, and measurably happy, her wine naturally began to assert itself again, and it got a little the start of her. I mean it set her music going, her silver bell of a tongue. Dear me, she was a master talker. It would not become me to suggest that it was pretty late, and that I was a tired man and very sleepy. I wished I had gone off to bed when I had the chance. Now I must stick it out. There was no other way. So she tinkled along and along, in the otherwise profound and ghostly hush of the sleeping castle, until by and by there came, as if from deep down under us, a far-away sound, as of a muffled shriek, with an expression of agony about it that made my flesh crawl. The queen stopped, and her eyes lighted with pleasure. She tilted her graceful head as a bird does when it listens. The sound bored its way up through the stillness again. "'What is it?' I said." It is truly a stubborn soul, and endureth long. It is many hours now. Endureth what? The rack. Come, ye shall see a blithe sight. And he yield not his secret now, ye shall see him torn asunder. What a silky smooth hellion she was, and so composed and serene, when the cords all down my legs were hurting in sympathy with that man's pain. Conducted by mailed guards bearing flaring torches, we tramped along echoing corridors and down stone stairways dank and dripping, and smelling of mold and ages of imprisoned night. A chill, uncanny journey, and a long one, and not made the shorter or the cheerier by the sorceress's talk, which was about this sufferer and his crime. He had been accused by an anonymous informer of having killed a stag in the royal preserves. I said, "'Anonymous testimony isn't just the right thing, Your Highness.' It were fairer to confront the accused with the accuser. I had not thought of that, it being but of small consequence. But an I would, I could not, for that the accuser came masked by night and told the forester, and straightway got him hence again, and so the forester knoweth him not. Then is this unknown the only person who saw the stag killed? Marry, no man saw the killing— but this unknown saw this hardy wretch near to the spot where the stag lay, and came with right loyal zeal and betrayed him to the forester. And so the unknown was near the dead stag, too? Isn't it just possible that he did the killing himself? His loyal zeal, in a mask, 
looks just a shade suspicious. But what is your highness's idea for racking the prisoner? Where is the prophet? He will not confess else, and then were his soul lost. For his crime his life is forfeited by the law, and of a surety will I see that he payeth it. But it were peril to my own soul to let him die unconfessed and unabsolved. Nay, I were a fool to fling me into hell for his accommodation. But, your highness, suppose he has nothing to confess. As to that we shall see anon. And I rack him to death, and he confess not. It will peradventure show that he had indeed not to confess. Ye will grant that that is sooth? Then shall I not be damned for an unconfessed man that had not to confess. Wherefore I shall be safe. It was the stubborn unreasoning of the time. It was useless to argue with her. Arguments have no chance against petrified training. They wear it as little as the waves wear a cliff. And her training was everybody's. The brightest intellect in the land would not have been able to see that her position was defective. As we entered the rack cell, I caught a picture that will not go from me. I wish it would. A native young giant of thirty or thereabouts lay stretched upon the frame on his back, with his wrists and ankles tied to ropes which led over windlasses at either end. There was no color in him, his features were contorted and set, and sweat drops stood upon his forehead. A priest bent over him on each side, the executioner stood by, guards were on duty, smoking torches stood in sockets along the walls. In a corner crouched a poor young creature, her face drawn with anguish, a half-wild and hunted look in her eyes, and in her lap lay a little child asleep. Just as we stepped across the threshold, the executioner gave his machine a slight turn, which wrung a cry from both the prisoner and the woman. But I shouted, and the executioner released the strain without waiting to see who spoke. I could not let this horror go on. It would have killed me to see it. I asked the queen to let me clear the place and speak to the prisoner privately. And when she was going to object, I spoke in a low voice, and said I did not want to make a scene before her servants, but I must have my way, for I was King Arthur's representative, and was speaking in his name. She saw she had to yield. I asked her to endorse me to these people, and then leave me. It was not pleasant for her, but she took the pill, and even went further than I was meaning to require. I only wanted the backing of her own authority, but she said, Ye will do in all things as this lord shall command. It is the boss. It was certainly a good word to conjure with. You could see it by the squirming of these rats. The queen's guards fell into line, and she and they marched away with their torch-bearers, and woke the echoes of the cavernous tunnels with the measured beat of their retreating footfalls. I had the prisoner taken from the rack and placed upon his bed, and medicaments applied to his hurts, and wine given him to drink. The woman crept near and looked on, eagerly, lovingly, but timorously, like one who fears a repulse. Indeed, she tried furtively to touch the man's forehead, and jumped back, the picture of fright, when I turned unconsciously toward her. It was pitiful to see. "'Lord,' I said, "'stroke him, lass, if you want to. Do anything you're a mind to. Don't mind me.' Why, her eyes were as grateful as an animal's when you do it a kindness that it understands.' The baby was out of her way, and she had her cheek against the man's in a minute, and her hands fondling his hair, and her happy tears running down. The man revived and caressed his wife with his eyes, which was all he could do. I judged I might clear the den now, and I did. Cleared it of all but the family and myself. And then I said, "'Now, my friend, 
Tell me your side of this matter. I know the other side. The man moved his head in a sign of refusal, but the woman looked pleased, as it seemed to me, pleased with my suggestion. I went on. You know of me? Yes, all do in Arthur's realms. If my reputation has come to you right and straight, you should not be afraid to speak. The woman broke in eagerly. Ah, fair, my lord, do thou persuade him. Thou canst and thou wilt. And he suffereth so, and it is for me, for me. And how can I bear it? I would I might see him die a sweet, swift death. Oh, my Hugo, I cannot bear this one. And she fell to sobbing and groveling about my feet, and still imploring. Imploring what? The man's death? I could not quite get the bearings of the thing. But Hugo interrupted her and said, Peace, ye wit not what ye ask. Shall I starve whom I love to win a gentle death? I when thou knewest me better. Well, said I, I can't quite make this out. It is a puzzle. Now, ah, dear my lord, and ye will but persuade him. Consider how these his tortures wound me. Oh, and he will not speak, whereas the healing, the solace that lie in a blessed swift death. What are you maundering about? He's going out from here a free man and whole. He's not going to die. The man's white face lit up. And the woman flung herself at me in a most surprising explosion of joy and cried out, He is saved, for it is the king's word by the mouth of the king's servant, Arthur, the king whose word is gold. Well, then you do believe I can be trusted after all. Why didn't you before? Who doubted? Not I, indeed, and not she. Well, why wouldn't you tell me your story then? Ye had made no promise, else had I been otherwise. I see, I see, and yet I believe I don't quite see after all. You stood the torture and refused to confess, which shows plain enough to even the dullest understanding that you had nothing to confess. I, my lord? How so? It was I that killed the deer. You did? Oh, dear, this is the most mixed up business that ever. Dear lord, I begged him on my knees to confess, but you did? It gets thicker and thicker. What did you want him to do that for? Sith it would bring him a quick death and save him all this cruel pain. Well, yes, there is reason in that. But he didn't want the quick death. He? Why, of a surety he did. Well, then why in the world didn't he confess? Ah, sweet sir, and leave my wife and chick without bread and shelter? Oh, heart of gold, now I see it. The bitter law takes the convicted man's estate and beggars his widow and his orphans. They could torture you to death, but without conviction or confession— They could not rob your wife and baby. You stood by them like a man, and you, true wife, and the woman that you are, you would have bought him release from torture at cost to yourself of slow starvation and death. Well, it humbles a body to think what your sex can do when it comes to self-sacrifice. I'll book you both for my colony. You'll like it there. It's a factory where I'm going to turn groping and grubbing automata into men." End of chapter 17. And so next week we will pick up here with the same couple and continue on with the drama. And just because today has worked out, strangely enough, <laughs> when other days just haven't, uh, we got a promo for a new podcast from one of our listeners. Here it is. Hi, I'd like to tell you about a new podcast I have out, The Well-Knitted Life. 
It's about health, wellness, fiber, and exploring Southern California. I'm a physician who also knits and spins, and I love to travel around Southern California, meet people, discover new things, and tell you about them. You can find me at thewellknittedlife.com or on iTunes as The Well Knitted Life. So there you are. I know Anita has been working for quite a while. She and I have been corresponding a lot about um, getting the podcast up and running. So this is very exciting. So congratulations, Anita. And on that note, I'm going to go. I hope you have a great week. I hope, honestly, I hope I do too. And uh, I'll talk to you very soon with more Mark Twain. Take care. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support CraftLit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the summer issue at www.knitcircus.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of CraftLit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>